Millions of despairing men, women, and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the US Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everyone to Garden of Doom and we are deep into theme month. Uh, and here we are. We're going to talk about Star Trek today. And because, listen, I'm a casual Star Trek fan. I am not one of those that you're a Star Wars person or you're a Star Trek person. Just, you know, I, I like them both. I will say that with the horrendous latter six or seven movies in Star Wars, that uh, Star Trek probably has to have the edge in, in quality uh, by a wide margin at this part, at this point anyway. Um, that said... Uh, I am no expert on Star Trek, but I know a lot of people love it. It's got conventions, it's got cults, and cult following, that is. <laughs> I don't want to confuse it with regular cults, because we covered that last, uh, you know, a few, several times on this show, including a Survivor of Scientology, so I don't want to confuse the two. Anyway, point is, I'm not an expert, so I found some experts. So my guests today are Elizabeth McDowell and Brian Moss, who are both self-avowed Trekkies, uh, found each other or uh, reconnected or confirmed their status through uh, Star Trek groups. And, you know, without me botching it, I'm going to let them introduce themselves. So we'll, ladies first, I'm old, so chivalry. So we'll start with Elizabeth. You can introduce yourself and tell your, your Star Trek origin story, and then we'll move on to Brian. So I'm Elizabeth McDowell, as uh, Jeff mentioned, and I am a Star Trek fan who became a Star Trek fan as an adult. 
I am a millennial and I would have been about the right age to watch TNG when it first aired, but because of my very religious parents and all kinds of things, I didn't get an opportunity to see it. So I started watching it when I was probably about 28 or 29 and I started with TNG, The Next Generation, fell down a rabbit hole and since then I've... I would call myself a fanatic. Maybe I would. Um, But there was something about the series that really spoke to me. And also finding out that the fan community of Star Trek fans is such an interesting place. So that kind of definitely helped me along in my fandom. Whenever I'm not geeking out about Star Trek, I host a podcast called Murder, She Woke with a friend of mine about uh, Murder, She Wrote. And if you're so inclined, you should check it out. So thank you for that. Brian, tell us about yourself and your Star Trek story. Thanks. Um, my name is Brian Moss. I'm 44 years old. I've been a fan of Star Trek probably since I was about maybe five or six. Um, it used, the, the original series used to come on in syndication when I was a little kid. And I would remember my mom would always have it on whenever I came home from school. And we'd always play Star Trek on the playground at recess. And um, just a huge dork about the series. Um, I collect Star Trek novels for fun. Um, I can probably quote the plot of pretty much any episode title you throw at me. And I'm I'm just here for it all. Um, It's just inspiring and fun. And it's a good way to engage my brain. Okay, so let me let the audience know that uh, like our guests for the MCU, they probably love the subject matter too much. Um, but hopefully I can control them better than I could tr- control Mr. Yari, who who can't be controlled in his love. And I gave them sort of strict instructions. So let's try and keep it to 90 minutes to go through the original series, The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, and I believe Voyager. That's considered the big four. Now, I'm old enough to remember... Star Trek was probably first run while I was still alive, but I'm sure I watched it mostly in syndication as well. It's hard to tell when you're that age, but in reruns, I you know watched it for years and years and years. Uh, I also remember the Star Trek cartoon, which was the same animation as the Planet of the Apes cartoon, so I always, always pair those shows. I watched The Next Generation, but I didn't watch it religiously, but I probably seen them all. Um, I picked up Deep Space Nine not immediately but i did see it until the end i actually thought i missed the last episode got mad at myself and then i searched on the internet found it and realized that i did see it and i just didn't like the end um (laughs) voyager i probably saw some episodes but i wasn't really down with it um i've seen some episodes of enterprise i've saw the first season of discovery when they ran it on regular cbs when they needed new programming during covid as opposed to the all access uh and i'm sure i've seen you know, I've seen most of the movies going back to Kirstie Alley's introduction as Mr. Savick and V'ger and, and all of the movies. But we're going to try to stick to the big four of TV. And I am now spending their time that I gave them. So, la- lady and gentleman, please, without further ado, take, take us through it in whatever order uh, that you guys I know have practiced. So Brian had actually put together a really interesting outline of kind of why he loved the show 
and important themes in that. But I think what we should do really quickly first is just go through bullet points of the four just to kind of give a little bit of background coloring for those who haven't seen it. And we had divided this up. I was going to take TOFS, the original series, and The Next Generation. So I'm just going to get through this as fast as I can. And I guess interrupt me if you have questions. But hopefully this is all pretty straightforward. Um, so the original Star Trek, uh, it was the, uh, the first season aired in September of 1966. Prior to that, there had been a pilot episode that didn't rate very well, and it was not what you think of whenever you thought of Star Trek with the uh, the set and the types of aliens you'd encounter. So that was scrapped in favor of season one, which was the crew of Captain Kirk, uh, Mr. Spock, the science officer, and, and first officer, and uh, you know Dr. Leonard Bones McCoy, and Scotty, Mr. Scott, the Montgomery Scott, the uh, um, the chief engineer, and the other ones that we know really well, uh, communications officer Horra, Michelle Nichols, um, Sulu, played by George Takahai, and Pavel Chekhov, the young man played by Walter Koenig. So that ran for three years. It was canceled, but then it kind of developed a cult following, and that's where you get a lot of people who were... Um, uh, going to conventions and eventually it got so popular that they basically rebooted it with a series of movies, the first one being in 1979. So that, that's kind of the, and, and there were six movies. The first one was in 79, the motion picture, and the last one was the undiscovered country in 1991. So this is, that's, that's basically where Star Trek starts and just three interesting things of note in Star Trek in the first series we meet three of the most important alien species that we get to know which are the Vulcans the eminently logical race um, the Klingons who are more like the warrior race though they're a little more multi-dimensional than that as we'll get into and then the Romulans who are basically maybe this is oversimplifying it but evil Vulcans and they're warlike, but a little more insidious than the Klingons. The Klingons just tend to be very um, preoccupied with honor, whereas Vulcans are a little more shady. Or not Vulcans, uh, Romulans are a little more shady. I, I have thought of the Vulcans sort of as like the Stoics, um, the would prefer to be pacifists or left alone to the extent possible. The Klingons, I think, were modeled after feudal Japanese society, so uh, warrior, but honor warriors and divided by, divided or united by houses. Uh, and this is oversimplification. And the Romulans sort of sneaky, you know, and they, you know, named after the Romans, devious, warlike, but, you know, you know, be, sort of like beware of Greeks bringing horses or bearing gifts, so we always sort of sneaking around, never, never really know. Sort of like a heel in wrestling, you, you never really know where what their uh, allegiance is or their agenda is. Just you know, be careful, so it's hard to trust them, even even when your interests seem aligned. That's pretty absolutely accurate. yes. Good job. See, you remember more than you thought you did. Yeah. And I would just 
say that um, while Vulcans do want to stay out of things, they're more of explorers and scientists um, than they are warriors. However, they they don't shy away from diplomacy and they are involved um, in politics to a certain extent. They just are not particularly uh, ambitious in terms of conquering or battling and that kind of thing. So, um, and I'm just going to jump ahead real quick to TNG just to go through it real quick. Um, in terms of the next generation, that came on the air in 1987 after, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Brian, this is just mostly stuff that I have kind of picked up from the internet and from lore is that because Star Trek had such a big resurgence and the movies were popular, they decided to bring in a new, the next generation, you know, uh, Star Trek, the new class. And this one, it takes the place a hundred years or so after um, the original series, you know, the original crew of the enterprise C they're all legends. So this is the second enterprise. This is an enterprise D and the captain is Jean-Luc Picard played by Patrick Stewart um, Sir Patrick Stewart. Sir Patrick Stewart. I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, the the first officer is Commander William Riker, played by Jonathan Frakes. Um, the Lieutenant Commander Data is an interesting character because he is an android, as we learn, and he's the only one of his kind. We think until we meet his brother Lore, which again is maybe a story for a little bit later. Um, and then there's LeVar Burton, who just recently, and by recently, I mean, when we're recording this, which is July, uh, hosted a week on Jeopardy. I thought he did great. I haven't um, seen would you say? Yeah, so I haven't seen, seen any of it. Oh, it was just a side note. It was kind of embarrassing because the, the one guy like got like 10, thousand dollars in the hole and it was it was like the worst jeopardy performance ever but lavar burton was just trying to be nice and it was, it was whatever so what we also have on the ship besides an android is a klingon in the form of Worf, which is another interesting uh development because in the original series the klingons were the sworn enemy of the federation and we see a lot of episodes in the original series involving klingons we also have uh, Chief Medical Officer Dr. Beverly Crusher, played by Gates McFadden, and our counselor Deanna Troy, who is played by Marina Sirtis, who the counselor, the um, character of Counselor Troy is half human, half uh, Betazoid, which is another alien species that we meet in this series. Um, there are also a few of their notable crew. There's Dr. Catherine Velasky, who is the doctor in season two. And she came back for a few guest sparts. Sparts. Spot. <laughs> guest spots. I can't talk today. Wait, wait can we stop for a second uh, on Counselor uh, Troy? Wasn't she an empath? Uh, so, Betazoids, pure Betazoids, are telepaths. And since she's half human and half Betazoid, she is supposedly an empath. Though, I don't know whether this is the fault of the writers or just them not quite figuring out how that kind of ability was supposed to work, but she, the character and the situation kind of gets a lot of shit from people because a lot of times her 
empathy skills, empath skills don't seem to do a whole lot of good. And she'll say things like he's, or they're obviously hostile while they're, you know, firing photon torpedoes at them. Like it's, it's that kind of thing, which is, I think in my humble opinion was a little bit of a waste of her character, but you know, I wasn't, I was, you know, an infant when the show came out. So now she, asked me. she, she was not, a, a, well, I'm not the expert, but I remember that her character seemed rather useless and frankly was used sort of in a more stereotypical, almost like the, you know, sort of the temptress kind of role, almost like a siren. Her empathy was confused with flirt- flirtation a lot. And I think that she had, didn't she date both uh, number one or whatever his name was uh, and, and also Worf? Uh, first of all, I just want to butt in and say, uh, Will Riker is her Mzadi, which is uh, Betazoid for Beloved. Uh-huh. And they actually have a really interesting friendship and interaction over the course of the both the movies and the series. She does uh, get involved with work at the end, but I would just like to point out that Riker, her Imzadi, the the male part of that interaction, he gets around a lot more than she does. Well, you bet so, he does, sure. He, he was, uh, you know, well, he was trying to be Kirk. Can I, can I tell a funny story about Jonathan Frakes real quick and my dad? It'll just take a minute. You can cut it out if you want. No, go ahead. I'm not going to cut it out. I'm definitely going to hear the story about Jonathan Frakes and your dad. My dad and Jonathan Frakes are the same age, and they grew up in the, or they were teenagers in the same part of Pennsylvania, like the Lehigh Valley area. Mm-hmm. And they didn't go to high school together. But the one thing they did have in common was that my dad had a high school girlfriend, and after they broke up, the first person she dated was a Jonathan Brakes. Oh, okay. So, so I thought that was funny, and he didn't—he just casually dropped it on me one day. It was really great. All right, so your dad and Jonathan Frakes have traveled some of the same frontiers. Um, anyway, it was high school. <laughs> it's it's it still counts, and and you and you left out or didn't get to. Will Wheaton, the enemy of Dr. Sheldon Cooper, or frenemy? Absolutely. Um, so Will Wheaton played Wesley Crusher, who was Dr. Crusher's son. He was a teenager and young adult on the show, and... I hated him. A lot, a lot of people did. Okay. And I feel like... I could see why, but I'm not sure that that was Will Wheaton's fault. I blame the writers because yeah. they weren't yeah, very so. good at at writing a adolescent teenage boy. Genius, a but boy genius. Mm-hmm. Okay, so and, I'm going to over. I come from the generation where a lot of TV shows were ruined by introducing a young child or a baby. And when they star with it, 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 you're sort of in a deficit position when it's not a family trauma to begin with. It just it just seemed out of place for my 1987, which remember 1987, I'm 18 years old in 1987. So, you know, I, I'm not really interested in, in a 12 year old be on the starship. I, you know, I, I want what I want. I want to see more Wharf. I want to see more Wharf beating, beating people up. No, that's understandable. I mean, I, I feel like Seeing a kid on the bridge, though, might have been the grab for kids to get into Star Trek. 
if they saw someone that looked like them involved in the story somehow. So Fair enough. some of it makes sense, but the writing, like Elizabeth said, some of it is just really stilted and bad. And, ugh. True. All right. I, I will say it gets a little bit better as he gets older and kind of grows out of the bratty teenager phase, but in the first few seasons, it was a little rough. So, you know... I Starfleet, we don't lie. Oh boy. Jeez. Or the, the sweaters, the many ugly sweaters of uh Wesley Crusher. <laughs> um so I'm gonna I'm gonna make Brian uh you know, kinda give his uh notes on the the other two Deep Space Nine and Voyager. Yes. Okay. So um Star Trek Deep Space Nine um premiered in nineteen ninety three. Um, it actually came on during the sixth season of, of Star Trek, so it was actually, you were getting double-dosed every week of, of TNG and Deep Space Nine, which was cool if you were a Trekkie. So um, one of the big big deals about Deep Space Nine was that it showed the first um, African-American captain as a regular character on the series. So that was like a very huge progressive step forward in showing some, some good representation in Star Trek. Um, the shtick was that um, instead of it being set on a starship from week to week, it was actually set on board a, a, a space station. So most of the stories were about, you know, aliens coming to the space station for the first time or politics around um, the planet Bajor, which it was, it was adjacent to. So uh, one of the missions of, of Starfleet on that space station was uh, to help bring Bajor into the Federation. Bajor had been um, uh, occupied by the Cardassians, which were, I don't, I don't know how to put them on the realm between Klingons and Romulans. Okay, but they're and not the Cardassians, they're the Cardassians. No, okay. no. <laughs> was not involved in the making of the show, so. Um, um, Though I just came up with an awesome comedy series. <laughs> I don't know where you'd rate Cardassians between Romulans and Klingons. I mean, they're definitely militaristic like Klingons, but they're also super sneaky like Romulans. So um, it's kind of, a, yeah. kind of the best of both worlds. I, I, I figured that they were sort of Romulan stand-ins uh, because they wanted a new race uh, with this whole new mythology. But yeah, I find, yeah. find them to be very similar to the Rom Romulans without the relationship to the Vulcans. Right. Um, and also, there were a lot of parallels to Nazi Germany, where they were concerned because they were such an expansive militaristic race. And um, there are several stories that that really kind of drive that point home. Um, well, plus the whole um, occupation of Bajor and a lot of the the parallels between um, you know occupying this kind of vulnerable planet that's with with military and industrial um kind of i can't even think of what i'm saying but basically they they invaded like a a more like peaceful like kind of a is it agrarian planet and yeah, then they kind of Very yeah good. and then they kind of turned it into you know their own like they had mining operations and and it was it was basically like a, a parallel for for occupied like 
territory during World War II. Yeah. And well, wasn't Bajor also like a holy planet? Like it was the center of a big mysticism, a, a big religion, or am I confusing that with something else? No, you're you're on the nose, actually. Um, captain Sisko, which is the, uh, the leader of Deep Space Nine, the captain, I guess, um, he actually becomes a figurehead in in Bajoran religion. Um, and that's kind of what... He's already kind of at a mental crossroads when, when the story starts with him. He's lost his wife in a, in a battle with the Borg, and he's just really sullen and not too excited to be there and hates everything and would, would rather retire. And then the Bajorans kind of adopt him as a figurehead called the Emissary into their religion. And um, his life pretty much changes after that. So he, he becomes more dedicated to sticking with his mission and can the kind of interact? Are we? You just mentioned the Borg casually, and I, and Elizabeth didn't mention the Borg during the Next Generation. Oh, I are, know. Are, are we going to circle back to I'm the Borg? Sorry. No, it's oh, okay. Let's talk about the Borg. Let's, let's okay. talk Borg real quick. Borg. Can are... I just interject something real quick? Sure. About a lot of the events of Deep Space Nine take place around a wormhole, and it's a static wormhole, which is apparently something that's pretty unusual for at least this part of the galaxy. Which um, it, it's important for Bajor because their gods, their prophets, supposedly live inside the wormhole. So that's another kind of part that or uh, theme. Hang, that on. Hang on a second. Being brought up. I'm texting with Neil deGrasse Tyson right now. He, <laughs> he says that that it, it's unusual anywhere. As far okay. as Borg are concerned, um, the Borg we meet in early TNG's run, I believe, in season two of TNG. Um, they are uh, a robotic species, I guess half humanoid, half robotic, and their whole shtick is to basically just assimilate the entire galaxy and quote-unquote bring order to chaos, resistance is futile. I mean, aside from like Klingons, I think it's probably even fair to say that Borg are probably the most known race from Star Trek. Yeah, and they are, and they are at least two or three generations ahead technologically. And mm-hmm. where the Klingons are warlike and and you know, you know, I, I don't know, like any villain you could think of, the Borg are really more like Ultron from the Avengers. Like, I, I want to eliminate, either join me or get eliminated, kind of thing. But oh, well, pretty much, yeah. Yeah, get with the program or get out. Yeah, so, not, uh, not even Thanos. Thanos was just like fifty percent. Now they they were like. You're either with you're either with us or you're against us. When you're against us, gone. But so, um, go in terms of the Borg, they also, and this is something that we find out a little bit later in Voyager, is that they don't assimilate every species that they come in contact with. Only ones that have technology or knowledge or some whatever something that will improve the Borgs experience um as a species because um they just want to like with each and and this comes up in the next generation when they uh they capture picard is they basically download all his starfleet information from his head and it becomes part of the collective so that becomes kind of a plot point throughout the series at certain instances can I say something that is somewhat related to this that might surprise you all and maybe won't? But there is a pretty large element of the of the world who thinks that Star Trek and its entire universe 
is equated to some type of socialism and sort of like evil that's in the internet, that basically like the antichrist is hiding in our technology. And a lot of them do advocate that we should just adopt a simpler life, uh, which is interesting that the Borg aren't interested in the sort of the more agrarian, the more pastoral, the more primitive, if you want to call it that way, uh, uh, peoples. Um, and they want to assimilate. And, you know, it, it's, it's funny because it doesn't really matter if you're on the, the, the left end or the right end, because it sort of all converges at the same point. You just it's just a disagreement as to who's at the head of the oligarch, whether it's it's Satan and bloodlines. You know, they might may or may not be involved with aliens or whatever, or if it's just, you know, greedy corporations, you know, which could also be tied into bloodlines who run the corporations. But it, it's it's funny that like Star Trek is like their is like their sim is like their symbolic pop culture enemy, um, and that just hit me like a you know not like a truck but sort of like a like a rock hit me in the head when when you mention that. So I'm sorry to interrupt, but if I don't say something, I I, I risk losing my thought forever. No, it's a, it's a great thought though, um, and it's kind of why we hope that Starfleet is a better option than Borg. <laughs> I mean, I feel like Good their, their goals are the same in that Starfleet wants to bring people into the fold and, and you know, how, how do I put this list? Um, like everyone kind of on the same page and everyone have access to the same technology and, and egalitarian, not forced, voluntary and egalitarian, not forced, yeah. more, more communal, There's, which doesn't have to be communist, more, more communal. This, Sorry, go ahead. This also actually ties into the idea of the prime directive and first contact, because while the Borg assimilates and acquires by force, when the Federation brings people in, first of all, they're supposedly, and this is another thing that comes becomes an issue in all the Star Trek series, which is about the prime directive, which, and you can help me make sure I articulate this properly, Brian, that you're not supposed to interfere with any pre-warp or developing species in such a way that would um, kind of change the path of their natural evolution. And then there's also first contact, which is the policy of the Federation that once a species reaches warp capabilities, then a, a represent, representative from the Federation will make contact with them and say, hey, you're, you have warp now, come join us. And so that's more of a, a, um, a well, it's an assimilation in a way, but it's an assimilation by choice and also it requires some effort on the the part of the uh, civilization being assimilated, showing that they have maybe not have to prove their worthiness, but they have to kind of be in the same um, type of uh, what would you say? I don't want to say class because that's not right. I, I but, want to say like maybe the same level of technological advancement. I yeah, guess that's there, right. I guess emotional maturity might even be something. That yeah, that too. So that that's just kind of my take on it. It is assimilation. It is similar, but it's voluntary because at some point 
and, and Brian had mentioned earlier that a lot of the plot of Deep Space Nine was not a lot, but a salient point was that they were thinking of joining the Federation. And at some point in the series, I think they decide that that's not what's best for them, even though they, whatever, whatever powers that be on Bajor kind of oscillate between whether or not joining the Federation is the best idea for them, given their circumstances. Well, back to Deep Space Nine, was it, was it an embassy or was it just because it was a convenient space? Was it, I mean, I remember it wasn't a fortress because I remember distinctly it took a while before they even gave them a warship and they gave them all of one, I think it was called the defiant. Um, and it seemed like it was a place of embassy, but also a place of trade and tourism, almost, almost like a Las Vegas, you know, with, with, uh, with a small military presence for diplomatic relations. It's almost like when the mob wanted to have peace, they went to, they went to Las Vegas. It, It seemed less UN and more, you know, like a casino town. Yeah, it's very much like a, a frontier fort out in the Wild West. I, f- I feel like that's kind of how it was envisioned. So uh, so you had like this small contingent of Starfleet officers, and then you had pretty much everyone else that lived there doing their own thing, going to work every day. So. And you had the Ferengi who were sort of connivers, and the thing is Ferengi is a real word, and Ferengi I think meant was like traders, was like nomadic traders. So, um, just to go over the characters real quick, because I feel like the characters are, are one of the big strong points of this series. Captain Sisko, whom I mentioned, um, played by Avery Brooks. Um, you're about my age, so you probably remember Spencer for Hire Hawk. back in the 80s. He was Hawk. Spencer. Hawk. And he was also in They Live. That's on that show. And um, it just really carried over into this one. And he played the character so well. Um, just the way he approached fatherhood, but also the way that he, he didn't take any shit. No, <laughs> the Hawk, Hawk is an amazing character. Yes. Um, he punched first... Q in the face. Yeah. Q, who is Picard's adversary from Next Generation, he just straight up punched him in the face. Cisco Picard. did or Hawk did? <laughs> Cisco did. Okay. Well, it would have been better if Hawk did, but okay. Yeah. Uh, his first officer is uh, is Major Kira. Um, she's a former Bajoran terrorist. Um, she really has her own uh, developmental arc throughout the series. She's played by a, a Broadway actress, Nana Visitor. She's incredible. Um, and I, I can't say enough about her without spoiling several, several episodes. Um, you also have Chief O'Brien from from Star Trek: The Next Generation, kind of like as our our anchor back to that show. Um, he's basically in charge of making sure the station doesn't fall apart, um, smacking machinery and cussing out at it very loudly, and drinking a lot of whiskey. Right. So, and if you don't know who he is, he is the actor. If you've ever seen a western or a old timey gangster movie where there's sort of a, like an Irish boss around mm-hmm. he he plays that character in every movie in western in the last 25 years so that that's that guy oh colin meany is amazing um jadzia dax is, is, is the station science officer so um she's a trill which is a another species where we're kind of introduced to on the show um she looks humanoid from the outside um but on the inside she has a uh, a parasite living inside of her that's 
um, 300 years old and has lived in multiple different hosts, um, has memories and wisdom and knowledge gained from each host. So she's like Yoda in the body of a supermodel, I guess is the best way to, to put it. And um, it's definitely... <laughs> I... Go ahead. And also her previous host, Curzon Dax, had been uh, Captain Sisko's mentor earlier in life. So one thing that's super endearing about it is uh, Jadzia Dax is a young woman, I'd say probably in her late 20s, maybe early 30s, but he calls her old man because that's how he knew Curzon Dax is as an old man. So I thought that was pretty cool. And um, on the flip side of that, we have the station's doctor, Dr. Bashir, who um, for the first couple of seasons is a walking HR problem. (laughs) <laughs> and um, totally hits on Dax every chance he gets. Um, but it's cool though to actually, because this is actually one of the first Arab American uh, regular characters that we see on a regular basis. So it's cool to have that representation representation as well. Um, and he does get more mature as the series goes on and a lot less obnoxious, thankfully. Um, then we get Odo, um, who is the station's uh, chief of security. Um, Odo is a shapeshifter for the first couple of seasons. We don't know who his people are, and he's on this quest to figure out who they are. Then he finds out that they're actually space fascists who want to take over um, the entire galaxy, so um, good times. Uh, He also has a a, a romantic relationship with Kira later in the season, or later in the series. Um, We have Quark, um, who is the, uh, the barkeeper um, basically has, he's a, he's a Ferengi, um, a character we were introduced to in TNG that you mentioned earlier, um, very much driven by profit and greed, um, comes into conflict with Odo quite a lot, and um, his and Odo's dialogue is really kind of a nice hearkening back to Spock and McCoy from the original series. I feel like if you had to find a, a parallel to that, Odo and Quark probably have the, the best dialogue since since McCoy and Spock, I think. I would agree on the relationship, but I would say if you want a parallel to the original series, if Harry Mudd was a race, it would be the Ferengi. Yeah, yeah, I'd say, definitely. Um, to a lesser extent, we have Jake Sisko, who is uh, Captain Sisko's dad, um, who is who's just hanging out as far as I know. I don't think he has a really big arc on the series. There's an occasional Jake-centered episode, but... Um, I guess the, the kindest way to describe him is a, a less obnoxious version of Wesley Crusher. Um, he's He doesn't know it all. He's not a technical wizard or anything like Wait, that. Wait, he, he's his son or dad? He's his son. You said dad. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't remember a dad. I did remember a son, and I'm like, well, I'm, I'm not the expert here, but okay. That, that, no, that, that yeah, makes sense. Son. But um, his teenage son. Like every um, now and then he gets into trouble or he's kidnapped or something like that. But uh, yeah, but he's more like the kids from Raymond. You never see, you basically never see him. I will say that. Go ahead. Jake was the I would say focus of probably one of the best episodes of Deep Space oh, Nine, true. which was the Visitor, um, which was. I wouldn't even know how to describe it. It's like kind of an unstuck in time um, situation. And it, it, it really showcases his relationship with his father. Mm-hmm. And um, also, it's 
it's really hard to explain, but you guys have to watch it. It's a really great episode. It's one of the best of any series. And then later in the season, uh, later in the series, rather, um, season four, uh, Worf from TNG joins the cast. Um, Worf doesn't really develop much. Um, he hooks up with Jetsia Dax and marries her, but he's still a lousy dad and um, doesn't open doors well. So... <laughs> I think he was just there to help them with the with a military presence. Yeah, with the ratings, basically. <laughs> well, that's it. I think um, he was there for sex appeal and no other reason. Well, also, um, wasn't didn't the next generation go off the air and they wanted some characters to keep eyes, keep a, a, a transition? Yeah, yeah, and also uh, they they kind of did a soft reboot of of Deep Space Nine in season four. So the Klingons really became integral to the storyline again. Um, there was a whole, I don't know if it was an all-out war, but um, peace was no longer an option between the Federation and Klingons. So uh, so it got interesting there for a while, and Worf was brought on kind of like a liaison, I guess. And then he became, I think, the ship's, or the station's strategic operations officer, something like that. Um not to dwell too much more on Deep Space Nine, because I know we have a lot more ground to cover, but Deep Space Nine definitely opened the door for darker storytelling. Um, there there were uh, war storylines that pretty much dominated the last two seasons as far as they could work. But you also had episodes about things like homelessness and um, attempted suicide and, and um, the, the perils of a... Of a poorly run prison system, all kinds of stuff. So, Well, you had the Dominion, which was basically this uh, sort of all-encompassing alliance, but was basically run by the, the race that Odo was part of. And I, I can't, I, he was he was from Benson. He was like the jerk in the governor's office in Benson. Yes. His name is like Rene something. Uh, Rene Abergenois. Right, it's a big French name. But I remember they also had, they had, like their warriors were basically like a, a slave race, but once you got to know them, they 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 didn't. They were like sort of like the centurions from Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. They didn't they didn't really have a choice in what they were doing, and they had they had a they had an interesting name that I think is also real words from like uh, old Arabic, but they were called the Jeb Hadar. Oh yeah, I love the Jeb Hadar. Um, what would you? How would you describe them, Brian? Um, they are grown in test tubes, basically, so they're like an army you can grow out of nothing, basically, and they're dependent on a particular substance called Ketracel White for their existence, and um, basically, they're like drug addicts that you can make an army out of. Well, like so the clones well, from Star Wars, no. except they were dependent on, yeah, so sort of unthinking, but they actually had thoughts, but the drugs suppressed their thoughts, like they had... They had individuality that crept out every now and then. The, the, like, nothing was all... They weren't all evil. Right. Well, and also, there wasn't at least one episode where we meet some Gemnar who are marooned on a planet. They're basically going through withdrawal yeah. on catching... Yep, she froze. More as, you know, distinct beings than they are as part of, part of an army or, or what have you. And... The, the Jem'Hadar are kind of managed by a race of aliens called the Vorta. Vorta, yep. Vorta, and uh, the most 
famous one that we're famous, the most notorious Warta we meet is Wayoon, played by the great Jeffrey Combs, who is a Star Trek legend. Um, and they, the Warta are just in charge of. They're like the they're like the the branch managers of of the uh, of the Gemdar. They they have their own armies or their own um, purview, and they make sure that they do what they need to do. They're like the Stephen Millers of the Trump administration, basically. <laughs> they're there to do the dirty work. <laughs> yeah. It, okay. So that's very apt. <laughs> Real quick, I do want to go over a couple of supporting characters just because I'd be very lax if I didn't mention Gold Ducat, um, who's the main villain of the series. Um, he is just evil personified. He's just sneezy and calculating and fundamentally evil. There are occasional attempts to make him a nice guy, but it never lasts for very long. Um, I should also mention Space Karen, aka Kai Wen, who is the leader of the uh, the Bajoran religion on Bajor. Um, I, I wrote down that she was just insufferably haughty, and she's just like the personification of every hypocrit- uh, hypocritical Christian you'd ever meet in your life. Played by Louise Fletcher, a.k.a. Yeah. Nurse Ratched from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yes. Um, Garrick is also a very important character on the show. Um, he is the show. <laughs> Pretty much, um, played by Andrew Robinson, um, you probably remember from Dirty Harry. Um, he's a tailor aboard the station that used to be a spy, it might still be a spy, and is definitely gay for Dr. Bashir. So, um, that, that's a whole thing. That's really what I got on Deep Space Nine. Okay. Well, that no shortage of stuff there. Um, uh, there's a lot. But didn't but the next generation in Deep Space Nine they overlapped each other and purposely so and so did the stories. Mm-hmm. They did. Now Voyager, on the other hand, um, was was very much a departure. So um, Voyager premiered in nineteen ninety five. Um, I was a freshman in college at the time. Um, it was actually the flagship show of the dearly departed UPN. Um, right there with the uh, homeboys from outer space. Mm. Yes. Classic. Um, <laughs> and uh, in another nod to very progressive casting, um, Kate Mulgrew was actually cast as the, well, she wasn't the first choice, but that's another story, but she was cast as the, uh, the first female starship captain. Right. I, I look at her as a revenge for all husbands whose wives said, why couldn't you just ask for directions? You know, <laughs> But you also give her a, a starship named after a minivan, which I don't think is quite fair. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. I think but, also a space shuttle, um, but, you know. <laughs> um, the role had originally been given to an actress by the name of Jean-Vierre Bujold. Um, she actually quit after, I think, two days of filming and decided that episodic TV just wasn't her bag. So um, so Kate Mulgrew stepped in and... Um, just pretty much ran with it. Seemed um, like uh, Joie de Vie or whatever her name was made a very bad choice. Yeah, maybe for her mental health, it was probably the best choice at the time. Because Ooh, you kids with the mental health. TV, that you're talking like 12 to 15 hour work days on a good day. So 
if you don't come from that kind of stock, I can imagine that you know a, a full day's work like that will probably wear on you. I come from the stock well, that did wants intergenerational wealth, but okay. <laughs> we're we're also looking at this from the perspective of a finished product and a success, mm -hmm. and a large part of that success was Kate Mulgrew. So we never knew that she might have this other actress might have royally screwed it up and it would have been canceled after two seasons. This is so true. Yeah. We don't know what could have happened. That is on YouTube of her. And um, looking at that and then looking at Kate Mulgrew, um, it's probably better that we didn't get Jean-Pierre Pujol. <laughs> um, is Kate Mulgrew, was she read on Orange is the New Black? She was. Okay. Yep. So, so that's where people um, would know her from if you didn't know her from... Uh, Voyager. And if you're a senior citizen like me, um, you probably know her as Mrs. Columbo, um, a.k.a. Kate Loves a Mystery. Um, she was also on um, Ryan's Hope, I think one of the main stars on, on that soap opera back in the early 80s. She also had several notable guest spots on Murder, She Wrote over the years. Oh, um, yeah. I just thought I'd put that in. With, you know, outgoing too much about on a digression, there is a lot of crossover between Star Trek and Murder She Wrote <laughs> on a lot of these characters because they were all, they were all it all ran at the same time. So if you're getting like uh, you know actors who do guest star guest spots, they would normally you know overlap quite a bit. Sure, but the, the overlap that I like is from the original Star Trek and Land of the Lost. I mean, Walter Koenig actually wrote some of the episodes, and it's there's a lot of Star Trek in, in Land of the Lost. I did not know this. Oh, yeah. Well, to plug my own podcast, which is silly, because if you're listening to this, chances are you've listened to that. But just in case you're followers of Elizabeth and or Brian, or just Star Trek, um, one of my running episodes is that we do reviews of Land of the Lost. We do about seven episodes at a time, and we are, we well, by the time I drop this, I'm not sure where we'll be, but the last recorded episode took us through season two, episode nine, and there's only three seasons up to episode 13. So we're taking our time, we're having fun. So if you haven't checked those episodes out, check them out. <laughs> That's so cool. Well, um, going back to Voyager, um, the series is set aboard the USS Voyager, which is a, a starship that has been flung um, halfway across the galaxy into a place called the Delta Quadrant, which is basically like middle of nowhere where no one knows where anything is. Um, it's about an 80 year trip back home. So um, it's a long way home. <laughs> Um, their ship has to join, voice, uh, join forces with a militant faction that broke away from the Federation, known as the Maquis. Um, the Maquis is a, a story concept that um, started on the next generation and was continued into... No, I take that back. It started on Deep Space Nine, led into some next generation storylines, and then found its conclusion on Voyager. So um, basically... To go over the Maquis real quick, the Federation and the Cardassians settled a territory dispute by giving up some of the planets that were kind of on their border. And um, the Maquis were settlers that were asked to leave. You know, like, hey, guys, maybe it's a good idea, you know, if you don't, you know, put yourselves in harm's way anymore and come back into the Federation. 
And they're like, no, screw you guys. This is home and we're not leaving. And you can't make us leave. And they start organizing terrorist attacks against the Cardassians and um, also terrorist attacks against the Federation. So they're kind of like the Ammon Bundys, I guess, of Star Trek. But the I, I guess the point of it is if the Maquis could get to that quadrant, that means the Voyager could get back to their home within a lifetime. Basically. Well, they were all they were all thrown out there by some kind of space oddity known as the caretaker. Um, they were traveling through a region of space with a lot of turbulence and uh, they hit some kind of a um, a techno babble wave of some sort and uh, find themselves all transported into the Delta Quadrant. Well, Elizabeth and, was leaning forward in a threatening manner into the quest, so I'm sure she has something to say. <laughs> oh, no, I was I was going to say exactly what Brian said, is that the Maquis ended up there by accident, and so did Voyager. Uh, so they weren't following them into the Delta Quadrant. They were following them into, like, a certain part of the Alpha Quadrant, and, and they just ended up you know, far flung eighty years so the, but and the, change away. But they're also not a storyline device to have a solution. They're they're they they had the same problem and they're they're no close yeah. to any solution. In fact the Maquis if I I mean I don't remember the story, but it seems like they're they're okay being alone over there. Yeah. Exactly. The the Federation was actually in pursuit of the Maquis ship. They were trying to chase them down and bring them to justice and they all wind up in the Delta Quadrant together by accident. Um, the Maquis ship is destroyed, and um, all of their crew beams over to Voyager, and uh, Janeway has to kind of adopt this crew into her own, um, help them find jobs aboard the ship, and they all have to learn how to get along and work together to get back home in one piece. So. And this is also interesting, because this whole like blended crew situation... Um, all, like gives rise to a lot of plot lines about Starfleet protocol and the prime directive and whether or not in a situation like this, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of light years from home is what's the best way to act. Is Starfleet protocol still the right thing? Does it even apply? So a lot of that tension, it, it serves as a plot device and it's it's really interesting to me yes uh, one of the cool things about voyager it's funny because i'm sorry because battlestar galactica you know has the same issue do the rules of the 12 colonies still apply when there are no 12 colonies when we're just on the run and it's all about moral ambiguity and i think the interesting thing about star trek is this thing with the maquis maybe the first time that there was sort of a moral ambiguity within starfleet itself uh, everything was in utopia and you had, you know, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. I mean, they, they thought they were the displaced, you know, indigenous peoples from that area. Um, you know, but the Federation said, Hey, listen, there's going to be a war if you don't move and it's for the greater good. And the, the, well, I'm going to say the Kardashians, cause I don't care that it's the Kardashians, the, the Kardashians were going to come and, you know, fashion them to death, I guess. Mm -hmm. With plastic surgery. <laughs> Sorry, I was going to say something and I completely forgot what I was going to say. I, I, I have that effect oh, no, on no, people. Actually, I, I remember it. Okay. Um, so, apropos of the tension within Starfleet, um, it's supposed to be this Federation and Starfleet are supposed to be kind of these utopian ideals. 
but we see a lot of bureaucratic drama that goes on in uh, starting with Next Generation all the way up through Voyager for the most part is a lot of times you'll get people disagreeing and, and admirals making the wrong decisions and captains going rogue and that kind of thing, which it's a little less clear when you're out in the middle of the Delta Quadrant and you don't have anybody to directly answer to. But I also thought it did a pretty good job of showing the tension between like a, an administrator or a decision-making person versus someone who's in the field. So that was my digression. <laughs> um, one thing that's nice about Voyager 2, because Deep Space Nine was really serialized, I feel like Deep Space Nine actually was one of the first serialized versions of Star Trek where you kind of had to have an idea of what happened in the last few episodes to understand what was happening in front of you at whatever point you're watching. Voyager, not so much. Voyager, you can pretty much turn on any episode of Voyager and not really need to know a lot about what happened before, if that makes any sense. Sure it does. Um, yeah, when, that was a lot, it's a lot more like The Next Generation than it was yeah. like Deep Space Nine. Which series yeah. was Seven of Nine on? She She's on Voyager. Oh, yeah. Yes. So we'll come to her. Um... Just to kind of go over the crew. Oh, yes, we did. <laughs> aside from Captain Janeway, we also have um, her first officer, um, Chakotay. Um, Chakotay is kind of full of problems. <laughs> um, he, was, he was written as a Native American character from an indeterminate tribe, we know not what. Um, there's really some kind of problematic aspects to that character because he was conceived by someone... Elizabeth, you may know more about the conception of the character than I do in this case. Um, wasn't he written by someone who claimed to be an expert in Native American culture, but was actually kind of bullshitting his way through that? Uh, I don't know, and I should have listened, looked into it, but one thing that we should notice that Chakotay was the Maquis captain, yes. and... Captain, or Captain Janeway appointed him as her first officer over Tuvok, the Vulcan Federation officer, or uh, Starfleet officer, as a way of, I guess, showing good faith to the Maquis to say, you know, we're not just going to treat you guys as schleps, we're going to put you in leadership positions and actually, like, make this an active partnership versus... But yeah, the 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 Chicote situation. There's lots of uh, kind of checking the boxes on what a white person would think that a Native American or a Native Indigenous person would do. Things like talking to animals and spirit quests and just kind of a lot of woo woo stuff. Yeah. It gets really cringy. Like there's a whole episode about him discovering the origin of the giant tattoo on his face. Yeah, I, he's even aside from all of that, he's just not a very interesting character. So, um, and he's played by Robert Beltran, and frankly, I, I don't know a whole lot about his resume. Um, I want to say he was in a movie called Eating Raul, which kind of has a cult following, 
Aside from that, I don't know much about his background. I've seen Eating Raul. It's very overrated. I also feel like the one or two situations where they tried to give him backstory and develop him into like a deep character, it didn't hit right because it came out of nowhere. Um, I, I just remember one where he's sick and he's screaming about how much pain he's in. And it's just it's so jarring that I didn't even want to watch it because it just didn't compute. Oh, in, in the last season of Voyager, there's episodes where Chakotay is, like, hooking up with Seven. Oh, I heard about that. I haven't gotten there yet. And out of nowhere. Like, why? <laughs> why? Because <laughs> he could. <laughs> but yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll come to that. Um, let's talk about Tuvok real quick. Well, he, he also hooks up with Janeway whenever they're stranded yeah. on that planet. Yeah. Chakotay's just kind of a kind of a tool. I don't care for the guy. <laughs> um, Tuvok is played by Tim Russ. Um, as Elizabeth alluded to, he is the chief of security aboard the ship. Um, he is very much your traditional full-blooded Vulcan, very stoic, but also uh, very capable of uh, letting the sarcasm run freely. Um, oh he doesn't really have any big arcs aboard the show. So, but um, he's he's Captain Janeway's confidant. Um, he is pretty much like the first person she'll come to whenever she's having her own issues that she needs to work out. So, um, in that respect, their relationship is very much like Kirk and Spock. I feel without Spock's uh, sort of inner struggle. Exactly, exactly. But they they they're definitely very close friends. Um, Bolana Taurus is the ship's chief engineer. She's half human and half Klingon. Um, she's definitely one of the more dynamic characters. Um, she could have been portrayed, I guess, as more stereotypical, hot-headed Latinx, but I feel like the actress, Roxanne Dawson, just really brought a whole lot of depth to the character and just really made you care about her. Um, she, she was... Also, she was also a Maki, so she's another one they brought on in a leadership kind of position whenever uh, they integrated crews. Were the Maki more ethnically diverse than the Federation crew? It sounds like uh, the two Maki characters you've described so far are, you know, sort of do check those boxes. I don't know if it's just coincidence or not. Tupac is, is a Klingon. He's black so he, he checks that box right i, I guess yes. if he's a klingon he's not african-american because he's not african or american um he's a vulcan um okay i i this is the sh- this is the show i know the least about as i said earlier and and i don't remember any jacote um and, There's a reason for that. <laughs> and, and, I, and I confused, uh, and when you were talking about the uh, the security officer, I got her confused with the, I think, the security officer from Deep Space Nine. Well, aside from Bolana, you have Tom Paris, who is the ship's pilot. Um, he's basically like a Han Solo type. Um, he and Bolana get married later on in, in, the, in the season's but aside from that, he's just like your general, I don't know, adventurer type. There's not really any distinguishing characteristics about him, I'd say. Maybe well, I'm not nice. <laughs> he, he was, he's the son of an ad, a Starfleet admiral. 
And he, he apparently ended up on some kind of prison colony, which is where Janeway found him. Like, she went to him specifically and got him out of space jail to go on this mission because of some special expertise of his. And that's just something that he seems to struggle with throughout the entirety of the uh, series is like his identity, like what, what am I? Am I Starfleet? Am I, you know, something else? And then he really likes kind of those old kitschy, he goes like Captain Proton, but it's like, a, um, and like an old, like 1950s space TV show where everything's made of tinfoil and, uh, all the aliens have really big hair. Yeah. Yeah, he's very much into, like, fixing old cars and, and his Captain Proton cosplay on the holodeck and stuff like that. Um, aside from that, though, I, he just never really resonated with me as an interesting character. The actor, though, Robert Duncan McNeil, um, he's actually a director of Sun Note nowadays. Um, he directed several episodes of Chuck, I want to say, um, maybe even a few episodes of Voyager... Um, I think he's directing some episodes of the new Turner and Hooch remake on Disney Plus. So uh, he's he's still a working director, at least. Can I ask a question about Voyager? I mean, I think that you know we all know the original Star Trek. I mean, I don't know that they had a, a broad mission, but Gene Roddenberry had a vision of sort of a better universe and humanity being a force for good and and egalitarianism. Sure. The next generation was sort of to further that uh, even further into the the galaxy. Deep Space Nine sort of made it a made universe building, uh, you know, with with the embassy and the politics and sort of bring some religion and conflict into it. And then Voyager just seems like they sort of thrust them out there sort of on, on the side spur. And, and I'm wondering where it fits into the Star Trek universe, unless it was just to explore the moral ambiguity of things, which I think they sort of did on Deep Space Nine with the diplomacy and duplicity. Well, Voyager, I guess the more I think about it now, having just rewatched it recently, I feel like a, a good bit of that is getting two disparate groups of people who have very little ideology in common, I think putting them together for common cause, in this case, trying to get home. Oh, so the Maquis did want to get home. Right. Yeah, everyone wanted to go home. Everyone had friends back on Earth and family and, and everything else. They're not out there just to explore. They're out there because they want to get home. So, and that's kind of the driving force behind the show. And I think maybe this is something we could probably benefit from now as a country, considering where we are now in this in this polarized state. But, you know, just people who don't come from the same backgrounds or believe in the same things, learning to work together and, and, and find some kind of common unity. Pizza. I'm sorry? Pizza. That, that's, sure. that's something that everybody should be able to get behind is pizza. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or, you know, getting back home for fresh pizza. Yeah, well, this show's called Garden of Doom. We're not about saving the world here. Except we, <laughs> except we did have a few episodes. We had one called Garden of Hope where we did actually save the world if people would listen. Uh, Go ahead. Aside from the Federation or the Starfleet and the Maquis, we actually do get two crew members, at least initially, who are from the Delta Quadrant. Oh, yes. Which 
on Neelix and Cass, which um, I, I'm going to let you kind of talk more about them, but that, that is in addition to this kind of bringing together this ragtag crew of people headed towards the Alpha Quadrant, um, they do pick up a few stragglers on the way. Absolutely. Um, just to kind of round out the rest of the, the original crew, um, we have Harry Kim. Um, he's the ship's operations officer. Um, he's just like brand new out of Starfleet Academy, um, very green around the gills, um, very eager to please, um, really has no story arc. Uh, he misses his girlfriend back on Earth. He plays the clarinet, and that's all I have to say about Harry Kim. And he never gets promoted. Yeah. Uh, one of the no one in that ship should get promoted. They're, <laughs> they're lost. <laughs> one of the more fascinating characters on the show is the ship's doctor, um, who never gets a name. Um, he's played by Robert Picardo, who's just an amazing character actor from across several decades. First thing I remember him from is The Howling, way back in like 1979, 1980s, somewhere in there. It was in the 80s, The Howling. Great movie, Dee yes. Wallace. Uh, one of the great <laughs> werewolf movies of all time. The Doctor is an amazing character. Um, basically, when the ship goes into the Delta Quadrant, they lose a bunch of key officers, um, one of them being the ship's doctor. So they have to use the holographic doctor on the ship. Um, he has no bedside manner to speak of. Um, he has a lot of sarcasm, though, um, and he's not really there to uh, take anyone's BS. Um, people are really rude to him. They, like, leave him running. Like, they'll walk out of sickbay and leave his program running, and he doesn't know how to turn himself off. Um, he spends kind of the first couple of seasons being confined to sickbay, Um so any any action where he's involved really kind of has to come to sick bay for him to, to get in on it. Um, in the middle of season three, he gets like a mobile emitter that allows him to leave sick bay and uh, like go on missions to planets and stuff like that, and lets him really just like break out and interact with the rest of the crew. Um, but more to the point, he's really like aside from seven, he's one of the like the Spock characters in that he's really kind of learning what it means to be human. So, and you really see him progress through that as the series goes on. He uh, he gets really big into opera. Um, help me out here, Elizabeth. What else does he do? Um, at one point, he has a holodeck family, and they oh, have yeah. to tell him that his, his weird leave-it-to-beaver uh, idealized family isn't the norm and and that kind of thing and he also though he also goes on a lot of missions um for them as well like especially in situations where it would be too dangerous to send an actual person or you know organic life form they will send him yeah um on to neelix who is played by another um alumnus of uh, of benson um, Ethan Phillips. Um, I love Neelix. He's <laughs> my favorite. Very much a polarizing character. Um, he, he comes from a race introduced as Talaxians. Um, Talaxians are uh, kind of scavengerish, I guess. He's kind of like another Han Solo character. 
Um, he kind of comes aboard as sort of like a scoundrel type character, but then he, he turns into the ship's cook and morale officer and I guess guide for the rest of the crew as they learn how to navigate through the Delta Quadrant. Um, he has some knowledge of like indigenous species. Um, when they go to different planets, he can tell you what's good to eat, uh, what you probably shouldn't be eating, stuff like that. Is he um, from the Delta Quadrant? He is. His race is native to the Delta Quadrant. Okay. So, um, in his words, he does wonderful things with vegetables. <laughs> Sounds good, I guess. Um, he is in a relationship with uh, with Kess. Um, Kess is an Okapin. Um, they're another race indigenous to the Delta Quadrant. Um, they have a lifespan of roughly about eight or nine years. And when we meet Kess, she's two years old. Um, she's played by actress Jennifer Lean, who, thank God, did not look two at the time. <laughs> but um, it's still kind of a kind of a gross relationship when you think about Neelix being kind of like a middle-aged dude and Kess being not quite a teenager. So if you think too hard about it, it's it's really kind of icky. Yeah. Um, that being said, um, she's got like just a very natural curiosity, curiosity and intelligence. Um, she becomes the doctor's assistant in sick bay, so she's basically like his nurse. And um, decided uh, the writers eventually wrote her out of the show, which was really unfortunate. Yeah, well, how are you going to age her so quickly? Well, I what they did it. was, they didn't age her. What they did was she had telepathic powers, and towards her end of the end of her run on the show, she had been developing them in such a way that, you know, spoiler alert, at the end of her time on the show, she basically, like, you know, uh, transfigures into a being of pure light and just disappears. That's lovely. Basically. But that pays the way like, for, uh, for Seven of Nine. Finally. Yes. So Seven of Nine is a former Borg that is taken in by Voyager and restored mostly to her human form. Um, so her time aboard the, the series, which is from season four to the end of the run, is basically about her learning to reacclimate to life among humans. Um, she butt head, she butts heads with Janeway like a lot. Like for the first couple of seasons she's on there, they are pretty much constantly at loggerheads. Um, Janeway kind of becomes a maternal figure, I guess, for Seven of Nine. Um, she's really intelligent. Um, kind of my my gripe about Seven of Nine is that she's kind of used as a. a Days ex machina to like solve the problem of the week with her board mana probes. But um, she and the doctor really get kind of get the biggest story arcs of the rest of the crew. Um, and also, I wrote down she wore uncomfortable cat suits to get ratings, which, yeah, she, yeah. she has stories about those cat suits. Well, the show's a little bit obsessed with Pinocchio, like, uh, uh, in you know, not exactly organic creatures trying to become real boys. Right. From well, Spock to Data, you know, on and on. I think her delivery of lines, her tone, and whatever the writers, whatever persona they came up with for her was just chef's kiss. Like, it was perfect. Because she's that 
weird kind of like straightforward that comes across as aggressive, but it's also just factual. Like a lot of times she says explain or clarify, and, and that's like her whole sentence. And she refers to the one little child on the ship as subunit of Ensign Wildman, which I thought I, I relate to very, uh, very much, not knowing what to do with children. She's played by Jerry Ryan, who just plays her to a T. Um, the, the way the, the line delivery is done. Um, there's an episode that is kind of gross when you think about it, but there's an episode where the doctor inhabits Seven of Nine's body, and basically you have Jerry Ryan playing the doctor, um, and just the way she's able to shift gears into a completely different personality on, on the drop of the hat, it's just incredible. So kudos to Jerry Ryan. I, I know that could not have been easy playing that role. Um, yeah, it's a tough one. Um, there's not really a whole lot of additional characters that show up. Um, there is a Naomi Wildman that Elizabeth alluded to, um, which, you know, you brought this up earlier. Every series kind of gets its own designated cute kid, and uh, she was it. Um, she becomes Captain Janeway's personal assistant and um, playmate to Seven of Nine. Um, you get Seska who is the bad guy for season seasons one and two, really. Um, she's a Cardassian operative who uh, was undercover as a Bajoran among the Maquis. Um, and she goes off to join um, an alien race called the Kazon, which are basically like a bad version of the LA street gangs. They're like Klingons, but without personality, I guess. Sounds um, like a bad rap group, Klingons without personality. Uh, pretty much. And then you also get Ichab, which is another Borg character. Um, they find a, a Borg cube with a, a, a few kids, a few Borg kids left alive. And uh, Ichab is the leader of that group of kids, and he kind of becomes um, Seven's um, protege, I guess, for lack of a better term. And then um, I, I wrote this down, Barkley, and I guess... You see him more in The Next Generation, really, um, but he also shows up for several stories in Season 6 and 7 of Voyager and is kind of integral to helping them find their way home. Do they ever get home? They do. Very last episode. Like, they pull up on Earth in the last, like, two minutes of the show, and that's it. It just ends with them showing up at Earth. Like, hey, we're home. And what's the timetable for them? Are they around the same time as Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, or is it a different time period? Um, it's taking place concurrent in that in that whole universe. So it's really um, as Deep Space started. I want to say season three of Deep Space Nine. So that's really kind of where it picks up. So it's all concurrent in that universe. Okay, so they just come back. They just get home, and I guess the war is is with the dominion is done and so everyone's not like you missed the whole thing you jerks so they're more like we're happy to see you we don't know what the reaction is yeah we never know wouldn't it be fun if they went there and it, and like they came back but they went back in time 700 years or they went forward in time you know a few generations and no one knew who they were maybe that happened we don't know 
that would this been... happens a lot in episodes lots of time traveling mm-hmm. to the future or the past to prevent or complete things so mm-hmm. that's not out of the realm of possibility i yeah, see i see Time travel is very easy. I've, I've, if I've learned one thing from Star Trek, it's very easy to travel through time. Much, much easier to travel through time than to get home. <laughs> but that's really kind of uh, my dossier on Voyager. Um, and I started out not really caring for Voyager during its original run, but I think it's actually been kind of comforting to watch, especially in the last year of like lockdown. Um, having a, a maternal figure like, like Catherine Janeway out there kind of using her brains and using science and, and everything to kind of keep keep the pace steady and get everyone home in one piece. That's kind of comforting in this day and age. So, Okay. So yeah. what, should, what, what are our general, like, our big themes? Like, what, what is, I mean, I tried to put my spin on it, but I'm an amateur. I'm a cash. I'm a casual. What would you guys <laughs> describe as, as the big themes of, of each of the show's and where were they supposed to take us? And where did they take us? Or you guys? Um, for me, it's optimism, really. Um, it's just the overarching theme, I think, of each series is that we can all learn to overcome our differences and learn to find the best of humanity in each other and and figure figure out a way to unite and, and solve problems together. And who doesn't want that, especially now? L? I'd say inclusivity, um, you know, just because of the nature of Starfleet and the Federation, the nature of all the alliances that we see throughout the course of all the series, and also the simple fact that you can have these four completely different captains that are widely held as great captains and be so completely different. You know, Kirk's the renegade, Picard's the man of letters, Cisco's a combination of a politician and a prophet, and Janeway is the scientist and the pragmatist. So I just think it's really interesting to see them all coexist in more or less the same position. All right. Well, from a casual plus perspective, I will say that I, I think that... Uh, even though there is optimism, there's also a little bit of cynicism mixed in there. I mean, we have to remember Kirk got his position by cheating. He cheated to, to pass the Kobayashi Maru. So that's always viewed as a victory, but it's also, you know, no one else did it. There's other captains who became captains, uh, but he's, he's the one who cheated and, and got that plum assignment. The other thing is that Kirk also basically sexed down basically anything he could. Now, that's more a sign of the times than probably <laughs> any giant moral issue. Uh, I guess you could call it ex- inclusivity because, uh, you know, it, it didn't matter race, diplomacy. color, creed, you know, a- anything. Right. Diplomacy. Very, very close and personal di- diplomacy. Um, but the other thing about Star Trek. Oh, my goodness. In the first seasons, I'm trying. I'm trying to think of where I was going to go with it, with the the Kirk sort of cheating. Oh, and then we get to the the newer versions. Oh, actually, first the 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 original pilot that didn't do so well. There was an episode in the original series where they sort of revisited it and take take parts of that. And I think it was a it was a trial. I think it was the trial of Kirk, wasn't it? Yes. Where, where Captain Pike. Right. Um, 
Right. So there's, so you can see parts of it in there. And then I think at some point they release the pilot so that you could watch the whole thing, but they, they incorporate that in there. But then in the, the newer version of the movies with uh, Chris Pine and uh, Zach Kinto or Kito, whatever his name is, uh, where they had our regular Spock in there, you know, older, they sort of did an entire timeline reset. Um, so like the whole thing can start over again. Uh, what did you think about that? Um, as a, as just kind of like a bubblegum, bubblegum sci-fi summer blockbuster, I thought it was a, a pretty great movie. Um, I just thought it was a really great way to kind of reboot everything for a younger audience to get into. Um, do I agree with everything they did? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think retconning the entirety of the series so that they could make some not so great movie choices later was a great idea. But in general, um, I thought that the cast was great and I thought the special effects were really well done and it was a great way to modernize it. The, the casting, I would say, was near perfect. I mean, I think that oh, the casting yes. was was amazing. Um, Absolutely. I, I agree with you that the movies, I mean, the third one was, I mean, let's just call it spade a spade. It was bad. The first one was pretty good. The first one was a good movie. I wouldn't call it a great movie, but it was a good movie. If you love Star Trek, you probably love the first new one. The second one was okay. The second one is Benedict Cumberbatch. It was more than okay. Well, that's probably, that's probably, he's like your 709. I could see that right away. Uh yeah, no, Benedict Cumberbatch is, uh, you know, you're not going to get any arguments from me. I mean, I'm, I'm very cis or whatever the word is these days, but I, I could see that, sure. Um, um, I just wanted to to say, and I know nobody asked me, but I'm going to say it anyway. J.J. Abrams didn't actually watch any Star Trek before he made the Star Trek movies. And then he, like, announced it on a TV show when he was being interviewed by, like, Stephen Colbert or someone. That made me a little sad. I don't believe him. Uh, I think he's a liar. <laughs> I was really disappointed by Into Darkness because I, I ride very, very hard for The Wrath of Khan. I think that's just one of the best Star Trek movies ever. Yeah. And it's like my go-to comfort movie. So seeing Into Darkness, like all of the press before it was denying that Khan would have anything to do with it whatever. And then they, they go in and just totally whitewash Khan's character and, and then just do a contrivance on the plot of Star Trek II. Why? Yes, agree. I remember that they came out, it came out around the same time as Iron Man 3. And I remember feeling the same way about both of them. Disappointed, but they were fine to watch for a summer movie. But as part of a bigger universe that both of those movies were supposed to be part of, I was not happy. Yeah. I mean, for Bubblegum sci-fi blockbuster movies you know if you want a, a good summer shoot them up imax kind of movie they're great when the ship came up and shot through i guess where they were having hearings or like the like the military council that was amazing yeah. that scene was fabulous um, oh yeah and, and you know nothing against the benedict cumberbatch but i mean Khan didn't seem very important. It was almost like an afterthought until he finally let you know that he was Khan. Um, and I don't know. It was sort of sad because Khan is legendary. And I don't know. Like, Khan deserves his own prequel um, before. I think I think Elle is either really mad at us or she's frozen in place in, in the same position. for uh, uh, And she can hold her breath for an unusual amount of time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, maybe she's Bajoran or, or something. Um, 
I didn't originally want to touch on this, but the the new show, I think it's called Discovery. I guess it's yes. probably in season three now. Again, I've only seen season one, but it is definitely a much less clean and much less nicey nice rendition of uh, the Federation and really the, the galaxy. I mean, I think it, it tries to take Deep Space Nine and then sort of multiply it by 10 or 12 and make it grittier. Yeah, I'm, I'm still trying to get a beat on it. Um, we're, we're getting into season four now. Um, the first three seasons, like the first two, it starts off kind of adjacent to the original series. I think like just it takes place just before the original series. And now they're at a spot in the timeline where we're like, I think like 300 years into the future, which honestly, I think is where it should have began. Uh, but it's really cool to see all of the, the super advanced tech in like a, a very, very far off future Starfleet. Um, but you're right, it's definitely a lot grittier. Um, it's also, with original Star Trek and TNG and Deep Space Nine, each of those seasons are like 25, 26 episodes apiece. So, you know, you have time to have, you know, like a Picard episode and a Data episode and a the counselor Troy runs off with the dude episode. Um, but with with the way Paramount Plus does it, you get like maybe 10 to 12 episodes a season. So it's a lot tighter. So you don't have as much room to wander. That's most so, TV these days. Most seasons are, you're, you've got your 9 to 13 seasons, episode seasons. Yeah, I, it's not what we grew up with. So it's kind of... You, they can't really afford to have like a bad episode or a series of bad episodes. Uh, they they really have to you know pick a plot point and stay on task with it. But you so, also get new TV, you know, three hundred sixty five. You know that is true. That is true. Um, one thing that I would recommend if you haven't seen it, uh, this is my plug for Star Trek Lower Decks. Um, you you mentioned animated Star Trek earlier and this is a relatively new animated series that they've done um and it centers around people who just work ordinary jobs aboard starships they don't work on the bridge they work way 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 below so it's kind of like downtown abbey <laughs> down the abbey of star trek <laughs> right it's it's very much a, a comic type show it's very it's it's freaking hilarious to be honest um whereas most Star Trek is aspirational. This would be like Star Trek if you and I worked day jobs aboard the Enterprise, but our jobs were to like clean the holodecks or polish the tables or, or clear plates in the bars. Okay, at the janitor. You know, the, 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 someone had to wash the bathrooms in Star Trek. It wasn't all self-doing. I want to run by you my movie idea, and I'm almost yes. 53, so it's very clear I'm never going to make a movie. Um, <laughs> and, it's been, and it's been very clear probably for at least 20 years if it was ever in doubt. So I don't feel bad about giving this up. So this movie, we don't have a, we don't have a name until the end. So you you get a movie with a, a, a young man, just starting his life, just gets engaged. He just got into an academy. It turns out Starfield Academy. You get to really like him. He excels as everything. You go through his story arc, his whole family, you know, the whole this is us thing. Everyone loves him. And at the end, he goes into his assignment. 
and they they give him his uniform. He's got his red shirt. He's going to work in a security function. And he walks right above the Star Trek Enterprise, and they put the pin on him, and his name is Ensign Johnson. And then the, and then his first thing they go Ensign Johnson to to the transporter room, and right there you go down and you see Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, and this poor dude in the red, and you know that he's right down. He's going to get vaporized at the end of the movie, and then it goes Ensign Johnson. That's it. That's oh, the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my god! Take my I will watch that movie. I mean, that's always how it's always the, the the random dude in the red shot. They get down there and like wh- whether it's three to thirty seconds, he's vaporized. I am so in. All right, yeah. good. So someone out there make that movie. Just just give me a credit. I don't need money. I just want. Credits. We all win producer credits on this, by the way. Yeah. Please. Inspired by some random idiot on on a podcast. <laughs> that, 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 that's that's all I need. As a, as a matter of fact, like Deadpool, I would actually prefer that to my name on there. Oh. No, like in the credits in Deadpool, like uh, uh, the British villain, a, a, a moody teenager, the obligatory CGI sidekick. You know, that I want credits like that. The random idiot from a podcast inspired by a random idiot on a podcast. So that, <laughs> that's that's what I want. That's That's how I want my legend to go. All right. Is there anything about Star Trek, any of the shows, the the mission, the largest that, that I missed, that I hijacked, that I didn't let you get to? Um, there is a Star Trek. Um, yeah. You're echoing, at least over here. Yeah, it is. Yeah, a little bit. Um, Star Trek Picard is probably um, one that you'll want to catch. It's kind of like an epilogue to the next generation, and it focuses pretty much on retirement for Captain Picard. So um, that's definitely uh, one worth watching. It's very kind of quiet and uh, cerebral. Is it like Logan? Uh, Kind of, yeah. That's probably a good analogy. And then um, there's a new series coming out, I want to say later this year, called Strange New Worlds, which will be focusing on the life and times of Captain Pike. In command of the Enterprise, so uh, that should be that should be fun to watch. I have high hopes for it. Okay, cool. Al, I just want to say that um, not all Trekkies are the kind of Trekkies that you would associate with the original stereotype. Like we are everywhere, so it's okay to like Star Trek. It doesn't make you any less cool. So hopefully, you know, let let your let your truck flag fly. That was a little bit scary. You said we are everywhere. That was a, that, that was <laughs> a little that was a little nefarious. So true. I can so say true. that I did work in this in the same workplace as L for it was probably a full year, and then there were probably some snippets at other times as well. We were on the same projects, and never once did she come in wearing a Star Trek uniform. And not even when there were like Comic Cons and and things like that in town, and there were, um, so it, it's true she could pass as a normie. Uh, I can't speak to <laughs> Brian, um, so you know I don't know. He'll, we'll have to trust him on that one. Um, all right. Well, I thank you guys on on the Star Trek Primer. I think that anybody they now have a pretty good idea of what they're getting into if they wanted to watch it, or if they just want to take it forward. I, I think that they could do so without being completely confused and have some information on the Star Trek universe. So I thank you guys. I hope that you are inspired to maybe do a deeper dive on the show that you love and do your own podcast covering 
all these shows and the episodes in some detail. Um, Elle has left us. She was frozen for a long, long time. So she, she's not a fabulous breath holder, which is probably a relief and, and technologically makes more sense. Uh, Brian, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Jeff. It's been so much fun. Good. Elle, when you hear this, uh, thank you very much. And uh, to the audience, thank you for tuning in and hope you're enjoying theme month so far. And thanks for coming into the garden. Bye, everyone. Stay evil, my friends. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. 